0: You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be.
1: From the Jill Schwartz Memorial Library in the wilds of Connecticut, this is Obscure, the podcast in which I read Jude the Obscure, out loud and comment on it as I go. I am your host, Michael Ian Black, accompanied this week by my little shit dog, Jack, who is sitting at my feet, looking somewhat expectantly at me and somewhat sleepily, which is to say his eyes keep blinking, what seems like kind of uncontrollably. And now it looks like he's preparing to join me on the reading throne. Now, when last we left Jude, it was getting hot and it was getting heavy. He had met a maiden on the banks of a brook, and she was throwing pig guts at him and preparing chitlings. And the attraction, of course, was immediate. Because you know how when somebody throws animal awful at you, you think to yourself, well, that's, that's the, the gal or the guy for me. Well, so it was with Jude, the new stonemason who, well, newly trained stonemason who has been trying to make his way to Christminster and not succeeding to this point. But it seems like all his ducks are now in a row. He has studied his grammars. He has learned a trade he is preparing to make his move when lo he meets arabella dawn and her two uh, fellow maidens which calls to mind of course the weird sisters in macbeth you know the three witches who were also preparing some kind of disgusting brew well These are disgusting pig parts, and Jude has come across them. Now, this is how they are courting themselves. Um, The last thing that she says, well, he says, I must have known it if I had come this way, meaning he must have known that she lived there in that area. But he says, I mostly go straight along the high road. He rarely turns to where she is. And, And she says, in her most beguiling voice, and this is where we left last time, she says, My father is a pig breeder. And these girls are helping me wash the innards for black puddings and such like. So we can clearly see where this is heading for a little. Right. Because once you talk about the intimacies of pig organs and such, there can be no retreat. So I continue with the book. They talked a little more and a little more as they stood regarding each other and leaning against the handrail of the bridge, the unvoiced call of woman to man, which was uttered very distinctly by Arabella's personality held Jude to the spot against his intention. So you can see that what they're setting up here, what Thomas Hardy is setting up here is Arabella Don is going to, and this is my prediction, because of course I have not read the book, but this is my prediction. Arabella Don is going to trap Jude there in Mary Green. How is she going to do it? With love and probably with some kind of baby. I don't know what kind of baby, but some kind of baby. So Thomas Hardy, the author, is setting up Arabella as the foil to all of Jude's thwarted ambitions. In contemporary literature, we would say this is what problematic. It is scarcely an exaggeration to say that till this moment, Jude had never looked at a woman to consider her as such. But had vaguely regarded the sex as beings outside his life and purposes. He gazed from her eyes to her mouth, thence to her bosom, and to her full round naked arms, wet, mottled with the chill of the water, and firm as marble. You understand? He's saying he's saying her arms are naked, wet mottled with the chill of the water and firm as marble her arms what a nice-looking girl you are he murmured though the words had not been necessary to express his sense of her magnetism ah you should see me sundays she said piquantly i don't suppose i could he answered well that's for you to think on there's nobody after me just now though there may be in a week or two she had spoken this without a smile, and the dimples disappeared. Remember last time, she, she, she had this trick she did of kind of sucking in her cheeks, and when she released it, it, it created dimples on her face. The better to lure poor unsuspecting Jude into her tangled web of feminine treachery. Jude felt himself. I'm back to the book now. Jude felt himself drifting strangely, but could not help it. You see, he is enchanted. He is enchanted with her. It is against his will. He has no will of his own when in the presence of a bosomy girl with naked arms. And he's just asked if he can visit her on Sundays. And she says, that's for you to think on. And he says, will you let me? I don't mind. By this time, she had managed to get back one dimple by turning her face aside for a moment and repeating the odd little sucking operation before mentioned, Jude being still unconscious of more than a general impression of her appearance. Next Sunday, he hazarded? Tomorrow, that is? Yes. Shall I call? Yes. She brightened with a little glow of triumph, "'swept him almost tenderly with her eyes in turning, "'and retracing her steps down the brookside grass, "'rejoined her companions. "'Jude Fowley shouldered his tool-basket "'and resumed his lonely way, "'filled with an ardor at which he mentally stood at gaze.' he had just inhaled a single breath from a new atmosphere, which had evidently been hanging round him everywhere he went, for he knew not how long, but had somehow been divided from his actual breathing as by a sheet of glass. The intentions as to reading, working, and learning, which he had so precisely formulated only a few minutes earlier— were suffering a curious collapse into a corner. He knew not how. So, basically, from page one until now, Jude had done nothing except to try to better himself in every imaginable way. He has gone above and beyond he has suffered in order to give himself an opportunity to escape his life at mary green he has uh, tortured himself to learn latin and greek he has done everything humanly possible to make a life for himself but he has done it alone and then within essentially 30 seconds of meeting the first girl he's ever met all of it goes to shit Now what are we to make of this again that feels problematic to me i get it he's 19 but are we to believe for real that he's never thought of girls until this moment like i can tell you when i was 19 girls were the only thing that i thought about i shouldn't say that i thought about girls a lot but i also managed to find time for other pursuits such as eating pizza going to concerts, and getting my own show on MTV. I mean, who cares? Nobody, like, who cares about that? That's just bragging. And that's when I peaked. And now I'm doing a podcast about fucking Jude the Obscure. I need a break. This is Obscure. Hi, friends. I know you were just listening to Obscure, and you were having a great time, but I'm here to tell you about another awesome Earwolf show, Off Book, the improvised musical with Jess McKenna and Zach Reno. Every week, Jess and Zach improvise a brand new musical with a piano player, a drummer, and a special guest. It's insane. The guests are awesome people you know and love from the comedy world, the Broadway world, all the other places. Uh, I'm going to drop some names here and you're going to be blown away. Scott Aukerman, Paul Shear, Paul F. Tompkins, Nicole Parker, Brian Safi, and so many more. Sing and rap and dive into all the musical fun. So listen in, subscribe wherever you get your podcast fix, and get ready to sing along, body roll, or just silently groove along to off book. (sighs) Back to the book. Well, it's only a bit of fun, he said to himself, faintly conscious that to common sense, there was something lacking and still more obviously something redundant in the nature of this girl who had drawn him to her. Which made it necessary that he should assert mere sportiveness on his part as his reason in seeking her, something in her quite antipathetic to that side of him which had been occupied with literary study and the magnificent Christminster dream. It had been no Vestal who chose that missile for opening her attack on him. A missile. It had been no Vestal who chose that missile for opening her attack. So he he's envisioning uh, his attraction to her as an attack on him, as if he was just an unlucky bystander who got hit in the face with Pig. And that is true. The first part of that is true. But all he had to do was say, I don't want your pig slop and thrown it back at her and been on his way. But no, he was the one who went down to the brook. He was the one who went over to the bridge to talk with her. He was the one who drifted his gaze over her bo- over her bosoms and her naked arms. He was as much a partner in this, this seduction than she. So all of this is, I understand, very romantic in the kind of classic sense of the fates have decided these two should be together. But from a kind of contemporary point of view, one has to say it feels, again, problematic. It had been no Vestal who chose that missile. And that, I should say, is italicized. It's one of the few words that seem to be italicized. And it's not a coincidence that the image chosen here is a missile. It had been no Vestal who chose that missile for opening her attack on him. He saw this with his intellectual eye, just for a short fleeting while, as by the light of a falling lamp one might momentarily see an inscription on a wall before being enshrouded in darkness. And then this passing discriminative power was withdrawn, and Jude was lost to all conditions of things in the advent of a fresh and wild pleasure, that of having found a new channel for emotional interest hitherto unsuspected, though it had lain close beside him. He was to meet This enkindling one of the other sex on the following Sunday. Well, that's interesting that not two sentences before, he talks about the light of a falling lamp meaning his own uh, intelligence and his own ability to discern what is happening to him, being enshrouded in darkness. And then, only moments later, he was to meet this enkindling one of the other sex on the following Sunday. So he has gone from darkness into a new kind of light, a light that is being kindled by this, let's say it, Hur, and... She's not. You guys, she's not. But Thomas Hardy is presenting her as such, as, you know, this spider wrapping her web around him for reasons which we do not understand because he has no means. She really has nothing to be gained here other than the affections of this boy. And they're going to get together on Sunday. Meanwhile, the girl had joined her companions, and she silently resumed her flicking and sousing of the chitterlings in the pellucid stream. Catched on, my dear? laconically asked the girl called Annie. I don't know. I wish I'd thrown something else than that, regretfully murmured Arabella. Lord he's nobody, though ye med think so he used to drive old drusilla fowley's bread cart out at marygreen till he prenticed himself at alfredston since then he's been very stuck up and always reading he wants to be a scholar they say oh i don't care what he is or anything about him don't you think it my child oh don't ye you needn't try to deceive us What did you stay talking to him for if you didn't want him? Whether you do or whether you don't, he's as simple as a child. I could see it as you courted on the bridge when he looked at E as if he had never seen a woman before in his born days. Well, he's up to be had by any woman who can get him to care for her a bit if she likes to set herself to catch him the right way. Well, her friend is being kind of a bitch. Look, I happen to agree with her friend, but she's being kind of a bitch about it. Basically, she's saying this exact same thing I just said. We don't know who this kid is. He's got nothing going for him. He's stuck up. He wants to be a scholar of all things, which is useless. And here you are heaving your bosoms at him and hoping that he kind of likes what he sees. So that speaks to a deep insecurity on Arabella's part and a keenness on her friend's part. So her friend called Annie. Annie. And that's the end of the chapter. So, he, so Hardy is setting us up for a terrible fall here, a terrible fall for not only Jude, but perhaps for Arabella as well, because there's nothing to recommend these two people to each other. Nothing other than a kind of uh, loneliness and desperation born of, I don't know, idleness uh, or, or a lack of opportunity. And she's going to steal his opportunity, the hussy. Chapter 7. The next day, Jude Fowley was pausing in his bedroom with the sloping ceiling, looking at the books on the table, and then at the black mark on the plaster above them made by the smoke of his lamp in past months. It was Sunday afternoon, four and twenty hours after his meeting with Arabella Dawn. During the whole bygone week, he had been resolving to set this afternoon apart for a special purpose— the rereading of his Greek Testament, his new one, with better type than his old copy, following Greisbach's text as amended by numerous correctors and with variorum readings in the margin. He was proud of the book, having obtained it by boldly writing to its London publisher a thing he had never done before. So he's all set to read the Greek Testament and then oh, Arabella, He had anticipated much pleasure in this afternoon's reading under the quiet roof of his great aunt's house as formerly, where he now slept only two nights a week because he's got his own place. But a new thing a great hitch had happened yesterday in the gliding and noiseless current of his life, and he felt as a snake must feel who has sloughed off its winter skin and cannot understand the brightness and sensitiveness of its new one. He would not go out to meet her after all. He sat down, opened the book, and with his elbows firmly planted on the table and his hands to his temples began at the beginning. And now uh, what follows is a little phrase in Greek, which I can't read, but it's, it looks like H triangle, I, A, O with a thing in the middle, HKH. So that's Greek. And it probably says like in the beginning or something like that. Had he promised to call for her? Surely he had. She would wait indoors, poor girl, and waste all her afternoon on account of him. There was a something in her too, which was very winning. Apart from promises, he ought not to break faith with her. Even though he had only Sundays and weekday evenings for reading, he could afford one afternoon, seeing that other young men afforded so many. After today, he would never probably see her again. Indeed, it would be impossible considering what his plans were. So here we have Hardy laying it on a little thick, methinks. Because we know that's like a sitcom thing that he's doing. He's doing one of like a classic sitcom maneuvers where the character, uh, you know, says to Bob, Bob, won't you just come outside for a minute to to see the milkman? And then Bob says, I will never go outside to see that milkman. And then you cut to, he's outside with the milkman. Now, that was a bad example because there are no milkmen anymore. So the idea that Bob would be going out to meet the milkman was probably not the best example. The FedEx guy maybe would be better. (laughs) In short, as if materially, a compelling arm of extraordinary muscular power seized hold of him, something which had nothing in common with the spirits and influences that had moved him hitherto. This seemed to care little for his reason and his will, nothing for his so-called elevated intentions, and moved him along as a violent schoolmaster, a schoolboy he has seized by the collar, in a direction which tended towards the embrace of a woman for whom he had no respect, and whose life had nothing in common with his own except locality. The New Testament was no more heated, and the predestinate Jude sprang up and across the room. Foreseeing such an event, he had already arrayed himself in his best clothes. <laughs> so he'd been planning to do it. Then he's like, No, nah, I'm not going to do it. And then he's like, Yeah, I'm going to do it. In three minutes, he was out of the house and descending by the path across the wide vacant hollow of corn ground, which lay between the village and the isolated house of Arabella in the dip beyond the upland. Right. I mean, even that is a metaphor, right? He's in the upland. He has his good intentions, and then there's a dip. And in that dip lies the spider Arabella waiting with her claws her little pincers rubbing together to entrap her fly. I'm not interpreting Arabella's actions that way. I feel like Hardy is interpreting Arabella's actions that way. Hardy is slut-shaming her before she has done anything slutty at all. And it's terrible. As he walked, he looked at his watch. He could be back in two hours easily in a good long time would still remain to him for reading after tea. Passing the few unhealthy fir trees and cottage where the path joined the highway, he hastened along and struck away to the left, descending the steep side of the country to the west of the brown house. Here at the base of the chalk formation, he neared the brook that oozed from it and followed the stream till he reached her dwelling. Oh, now he's getting sexy again because now he says... A smell of piggeries came from the back and the grunting of the originators of that smell. Mmm, piggeries, grunting. He entered the garden and knocked at the door with the knob of his stick. <laughs> oh. Somebody had seen him through the window for a male voice on the inside said, Arabella, here's your young man, come courting. Mizzle, my girl. Jude winced at the words. Courting, in such a business-like aspect as it evidently wore to the speaker, was the last thing he was thinking of. He was going to walk with her, perhaps kiss her. But courting was too coolly purposeful to be anything but repugnant to his ideas. The door was opened and he entered, just as Arabella came downstairs in radiant walking attire. "'Take a chair, mister. What's your name?' said her father, an energetic, black-whiskered man in the same business-like tones Jude had heard from outside. "'I'd go out at once, wouldn't you?' she whispered to Jude. "'Yes,' said he. "'We'll walk up to the brown house and back. We can do it in half an hour.' Arabella looked so handsome amid her untidy surroundings that he felt glad he had come and all the misgivings vanished that had hitherto haunted him. Well, let's see what happens to these crazy kids in a moment on Obscure. Okay, let's get back to Jude and Arabella on their Sunday courtin. First, they clambered to the top of the Great Down, during which ascent he had occasionally to take her hand to assist her. Then they bore off to the left along the crest into the ridgeway, which they followed till it intersected the high road at the brown house aforesaid, the spot of his former fervid desires to behold Christminster. So here he is at a crossroads, right? He's coming up from the dip to the brown house where he has looked longingly on Christminster, the seat of his dreams, the place of learning the Holy Land, as it were, and in fact, his own salvation as a human, his own way of redemption through learning and education and he's right there he's right at the crossroads and he's got her by her little handsome hand her arms now covered but he knows what they look like underneath he knows that they are hard as marble under the blouse of her walking attire and so he has a decision to make what does he do he said moments earlier to her bewhiskered father we're just going to go up to the brown house and then we're going to, or he said it to her, but in the presence of her father, we're going to go up to the brown house. We'll take a little spin. We'll come right back. Half an hour tops. I'm going to go back. I'm going to read in Greek. I'm going to have some tea. And then I'm going to go on to Christminster and I'm never going to see you again. Like that was the intention. Now you and I, dear reader, know it was never going to be like that. But poor Jude does not know. And we are in his mind now as he reaches the Brown House, the point where his dreams began and possibly are about to end. So he intersected the high road at the Brown House aforesaid, I'm back to the book now, the spot of his former fervid desires to behold Christminster, And here it comes, guys. But he forgot them now. He talked the commonest local twaddle to Arabella with greater zest than he would have felt in discussing all the philosophies with all the Dons in the recently adored university and passed the spot where he had knelt to Diana and Phoebus without remembering that there were any such people in the mythology or that the sun was anything else than a useful lamp for illuminating Arabella's face, an indescribable lightness of heel served to lift him along. And Jude, the incipient scholar, prospective D.D., doctor of divinity, professor, bishop or whatnot, felt himself honored and glorified by the condescension of this handsome country wench in agreeing to take a walk with him in her Sunday frock and ribbons and so I will leave you with that image the sun now just a lamp illuminating Arabella's face as we conclude this week's episode of Obscure the podcast in which I read Jude the Obscure out loud and comment on it as I go Obscure is brought to you by Earwolf. For more information on Obscure, visit our show page at earwolf.com and be sure to subscribe to Obscure in your favorite podcast app like Stitcher or Apple Podcasts so you don't miss an episode. And you can talk to us at Obscure with Michael Ian Black at gmail.com. If you like what you've heard, please write us a nice review on Apple Podcasts. And if you don't, why? Did you make it all the way to the credits? Obscure is produced by Jennifer Brennan, Mary Shimkin, and Robin Lynn, who also mixed and edited today's show with music composed by Craig Wedren. Special thanks to everyone at Earwolf, especially Chris Bannon, Colin Anderson, and the Earwolf engineer team of Brett Morris, Sam Kiefer, and Ryan Connor. If you would like information about sponsoring our show, email hello at midroll.com from the wilds of Connecticut. I'm Michael Ian Black.